The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Today we're going to be reading through Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through chapter 4. Uh, verse 1. This can be found in the Black Pew Bible in front of you on page 942. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said. Today, if you hear the voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. As you just heard, we are continuing on in our sermon series in the book of Hebrews. Um, Here in a minute, we're going to hit pause and pray. If you're of the note-taking kind, our sermon title this morning is going to be called Firm to the End. Firm to the End. And that is just being pulled directly out of verse 14, where the author is going to encourage us to hold our original confidence firm to the end. The main idea this morning that the author, I think, wants us to grasp, there is a lot going on in these verses. There is a lot that could be said, more that will need to be explained later. This is the second of multiple warnings that the author is laying before us, but it really does come down, I think, to this main idea that those who share in Christ are those who persevere in faith to the end. Or if you just want to read that backwards, those who persevere to the, in the faith to the end are those who truly, genuinely share in Christ. This is all coming out of verse 14. If you haven't picked it up yet, verse 14 is a crucial, crucial hinge verse in this section here. Chapter 3, verse 7 through chapter 4, verse 1. 
Um, we're going to pray right now, and I'm just going to ask that you would pray along with us. Just so you know, whenever any of the pastors get up here and enter into a time of prayer, it's not just simply a time for you to catch like a little like 30-second, 60-second snooze while someone just sort of rattles on until they get on to the real business of hearing a sermon or whatever. The crucial business of prayer is us going before God and saying, I can't, you can, and I, I really need your help. I really need your help. And before us this morning is just a text that is not unfamiliar to some of us. It's definitely not unfamiliar to the author before us, but it is one that comes with some weight, some gravity to it. As we're going to be talking about people who have at one point in time made a profession of faith in Christ only to have drifted at some point in time and just completely left the reservation Some of us know people. Some of us might know people who are somewhere on that journey. That leaving of Christianity. Having at one point in time said, I'm sold out, I'm in, my allegiance is to Jesus only for a year, two years, five years, ten years later, boom, they're just gone, they're nowhere to be found. Some of us might be here this morning, having completely landed in that place, but you're just going through the motions. Some of us might find ourselves somewhere on the in-between where, yeah, I made that profession. Yeah, I haven't completely ditched Jesus, bailed out him on completely, but I wrestle with the in-between land quite often. This text is for you. There is a gravity to this text because the warning of verse 12 coupled with the warning and the exhortation of verse 13 are crucial, crucial verses. The author is not only speaking to people who were Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians of his day, he is speaking to you through the Holy Spirit today. That is why he opens with, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today. Today. And I'm keenly feeling my inability to make you feel the gravity of today. I, too, am a man just like you. I wish I had the power to reach into your hearts and flip switches and just make you, quote, get it, but I don't. My fear is that some of us here here drifting in this spirit, that the people that the original audience were being written to, that they were drifting just like the people he's going to reference out of Psalm 95 were drifting and ultimately did come to that hard place of a hard part from God. And I'm feeling that this morning, so I'm just asking for your prayer, okay? So we're going to do that right now. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to do only what he can do. And I'm asking for you to also not just pray for me, but to pray for others around you. Most of us are clueless as to the regard to the baggage that we brought in through the door. You have no clue what the person to the left or right of you is dealing with today. And maybe today is the day that they need to hear a very clearly spoken word from God. They need to hear the voice of the Spirit through the word today. So let's pray for one another in that way. Let's be a family in that way, okay? So let's do this. Father, as you've heard me say and you knew before I even said it, that my, my heart is keenly feeling the gravity of this text. 
I am a mere man. I do not have the power to pierce hearts. I do not have the power to turn on minds. I can't make people get it. But oh, how I want them to get it out of deep care and concern. I want us to be energized for those of us who are sharing in Christ. Truly, I want us to be energized and fueled by the warnings that we are going to hear this morning. To stave the course, to breast the tape, to run the race. And for those of us here flirting with the falling away, Father, would you stay them, hold them, keep them from running that path that you would draw them, continue to open their eyes. Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit through me today, may we walk away confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is merciful. He is faithful. And that we would walk away genuinely changed and transformed by the power of Christ. It's in the name of our resurrected King that I pray these things this morning. Amen. Well, when Tommy was up here reading this morning, what you just heard was the author continuing his argument from what we heard last week. Last week, having argued that faithful Jesus is superior in his faithfulness when compared and contrasted to faithful Moses, and that those who hold fast their confidence and hope in Jesus, firm to the end, are true believers. These are things that the author said last week. The author is now going to round the corner of verse 6 into verse 7 and don't let our breaking down of his argument into weeks of sermons confuse you on what's going on. It's not like he's changing his argument here. He is just straight up rolling right forward through the door of verse 6 and he's rolling into verse 7 all the way down into chapter 4 verse 1. He's rolling into a furtherment of his argument specifically by turning to an illustration that these believers would have been very familiar with, an illustration of the Exodus generation wandering away from God in the wilderness, specifically a truth that was shown to us in Psalm 95, a psalm that draws a lesson from the faithless and unbelieving Exodus generation that existed under the leadership of Moses. So Moses isn't going to be mentioned by name anymore, but Moses is very much on the front of everyone's minds. Remember, faithful Jesus, superior to faithful Moses. Hey, remember that faithless and unbelieving generation that proved how faithless and unbelieving they were under the leadership of Moses? These original audience would have said, of course we remember that. And then the author would say, well, don't you remember Psalm 95 and how Psalm 95 talked about this truth and the lessons we could learn from their faithlessness and unbelief? They would have said, of course we do. And he said, great, because I want you to dial in because that's what we're going to talk about this morning. On the basis of their example, the example of the Exodus generation, the author calls the Hebrews, and he's subsequently calling you, and he's calling me this morning to pay attention, to be aware, to guard against falling away from the living God. The flow of argument is going to look something like this. If the willful and obstinate unbelief 
of the Exodus generation received God's wrath and denial of rest, then how will it not be the same for us if we are equally and willfully obstinate? You see, many, 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 many are those who profess to be Christians traveling and sojourning along the pilgrim way. But many are those who over time wander off the path, disappear, and ultimately stop journeying altogether. Where once they would have claimed to be on the narrow way that leads to life, they are now nowhere to be found at all. In a sense, their falling away has become a parable, proving that one of the easiest things to do in the Christian life is to go backwards. You don't really have to do anything to go backwards, and that's the point. The moment we stop striving, the moment we stop taking care, the moment we stop considering, the moment we stop running the race, empowered by the Spirit, considering Christ every day, as long as it is called today, you will find yourself not just shifting to neutral and just drift, you'll find yourself begin to go backwards. Indeed, in order to successfully fall away from the living God, you don't actually have to do anything. For when someone willfully neglects to consider Jesus, their departure will happen easily enough and their departure will happen certainly enough on its own. By contrast, though, by contrast, the author knows that one of the hardest things to do in the Christian life is to go forward. To do so steadily. To march forward firmly and consistently. So this is why the author said last week and is going to say again this week that the only certain guarantee, the only certain guarantee that you are a true member of God's household. This is verse 6. The only certain guarantee that you can have, that you truly share in Christ, verse 14, is that you go on and on and on in the faith, persevering to the end. That's his argument in verse 6 and verse 14. As we pay attention and working through these verses, two key themes are going to reverberate throughout this text. And that is the key theme of unbelief, and it's the key theme of hardened hearts, and how hardened hearts and unbelief are intimately connected together. Therefore, with these things lingering on the forefront of the author's mind, he begins his second warning from Psalm 95 by saying, friends, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. This is verses 7 through 11. It's him talking about those verses out of Psalm 95. And starting in verse 7 in Hebrews chapter 3, look at what he wrote. He says, pulling forward his, his Bible, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, it's interesting that he's attributing the psalm written in 95 to the authorship of the Holy Spirit here. He says, Today, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. 
You see, in this passage from Psalm 95, the author is warning his readers to not make the same mistake that the Exodus generation made, which failed to enter this promised land. And why did they fail? Why did the Exodus generation fail to enter the promised land? They failed to enter the promised land, these verses say, due to their hard, rebellious hearts. And drawing the Hebrews' attention to Psalm 95, as I said a couple of minutes ago, what the author is doing is just simply saying, hey, you guys know this story too, don't you? And they would have said, of course we know this story. And he says, listen, there's a lesson here for us to learn in regards to the journey of faith that we find ourselves on, much like they found themselves on a journey from Egypt towards the promised land. He's just saying there's some parallel truths going on that we can learn here. You see, they would know how the Israelites were taken out of the land of Egypt by God's grace. They would know how this Exodus generation had seen the ten miraculous plagues, how they had seen the parting of the Red Sea, how they had seen Pharaoh's army drown in that Red Sea. They had seen the pillar of cloud by day. They would have seen the pillar of fire by night. They would have seen manna from the sky. They would have seen water from the rock. They would have seen the mountain shake due to the very presence of Yahweh. You just go back into your Old Testament, into Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and over and over again, you would see a people who have seen, 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 seen. God show up. God do works. God do miracles. God do only what God can do they had seen it all yet the israelites did not believe you can see this culminate in the book of numbers in chapter 14 when the spies remember that whole story going to the promised land the spies come back give us the report 12 come back 10 are like this thing is bunk i don't know what god was talking about this being the promised land but we are not going to go here two came back and said guys we are going to trust god on this one and the people bit the lie of the 10 didn't believe the hey let's go do this thing as god said of the two and then what happened is they began to grumble they began to complain they come back believing that God's promise was a load of baloney and the people drew the conclusion that it would have been better to die in Egypt. Do you remember this from your Old Testament? They're constantly saying, let's go back to the place where we were slaves. Let's go back where we had no redemption. Let's go back, let's go back because sin had deceived them to believe bondage to sin was better than freedom in God. Sin is so stinking deceitful constantly dangling it in front of us bite into this temptation refuse the counsel of your friends who care for your soul who are encouraging you do not do this they're a liar this sin and the pleasure that it will immediately bring and its gratification will be better they were constantly grumbling and complaining god you have brought us here to die we wish we would be back in egypt and what does the author say that God's response was to this rebellion? Verses 10 and 11. He says that God was provoked with that generation. Recognizing they always go astray in their heart. So here it is. The actions of their unbelief are flowing from their heart. They do not know my ways, says God, resulting in his wrath and denial of rest. This 
says the author, is what it looks like to be hard-hearted to God, rebellious against God, and filled with unbelief. This people who professed to be God's people saw God's work. That's verse 9. Your fathers put me to the test. These people saw my works. Saw my works. Yet they put God to the test, proving, listen, proving that unbelief is not a matter of the eyes. Unbelief is a matter of the heart. How many of us have said ourselves or how many of us have heard someone else say, if I could only just sort of hop in my DeLorean and go back to the time of Jesus and see all the, all the stuff that Jesus did and see the miracles that Jesus did and hear the stories that Jesus taught, if I could see it, then I would believe. Hebrews 3 says, no. No, you wouldn't. Because how many people were actually alive during the time of Jesus and saw this? witnessed it, heard it with their own ears, were able to physically lay hold of the Son of God cloaked in flesh, and yet walked away saying, no, I do not believe. One of them was one of the 12, Judas. Unbelief is a matter of the heart. Listen, it is possible to see God's stuff. It is possible to be around God's stuff. It is possible to participate in and promote God's stuff. It is possible to sing God's stuff, listen to God's stuff, teach God's stuff, yet all the while do so with a wayward and rebellious heart. And the implication of the illustration is that the author feared something of an identical spirit of that Exodus generation was beginning to creep its way into the heart of those whom he loved and cared for. Therefore, he urges them to remember this negative example of the Exodus generation found in Psalm 95 so that they might take care against falling away. And that's point number two. Take care against falling away. Verses 12, 13, and 14. So look at what the author begins to say in verse 12. Hey, in light, he's saying, pay attention. In light of this story, in light of this illustration, in light of Psalm 95 that you know about, here is the lesson that you need to draw. Take care. Take care. Take care against falling away. Verse 12, take care, brothers. Remember, these are the holy brothers, the holy sisters that we just talked about last week. Take care lest there be in any of you Examine yourself on the individual level. See if there is lying within you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Friends, verse 12 is the warning of Hebrews chapter 3. Verse 12 is the warning. In light of what we just heard, take care to make sure this does not happen to you. Be vigilant to guard your heart. You see, the foundation underlining this warning of take care lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart is the foundation of Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23. A verse which says, guard your heart above all else. For it is the source of of life. And the reason why we must guard our hearts, says the prophet Jeremiah, is because the heart is deceitful above all things 
and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So just as the Israelites hardened their heart, and lest the same thing happens to you, lest you fall into similar willful neglect and disobedience, lest the same evil unbelief and obstinacy take hold of your heart, beware, take care, guard, guard your heart. Why? So that you also not be led to fall away from the living God. The word for this falling away phrase that we have in our English translation is the word apostasy. It's actually the Greek word behind that falling away. The Greek word is apostanoi. And that's just where we get our word apostasy. It is to fall away. And while little is said about apostasy today, it is a very, very real danger as the author is striving to show. Now, it's important to know and more will be said because this author is going to continue to give warnings similar to this in chapter 6, in chapter 10, and in chapter 12. We're going to lay some foundation this morning so when those times come, our minds will be ready and preloaded. It's important to know that to fall away, that is to commit apostasy, is not a reference to a genuine believer losing their salvation. It is something which happens only to those who appear to be true believers. It's important to understand that. We're going to say more about these things as we go forward. But what you need to know is this. When it comes to apostasy, an unconverted person cannot commit apostasy. Because an unconverted person doesn't care to even be claimed in Christ. The genuine believer will not commit apostasy because the genuine believer who truly shares in Christ will prove that they are sharing in Christ by holding their original confidence firm to the end. So we believe in the final perseverance of the saints. Well, who are the saints? Those who finally persevere to the end. They are the ones being held fast. They are the sheep who know the shepherd's voice. None will be plucked out of his hand. They will be held fast by God. But how will we know who are those who are truly being held fast by God? It is those who are persevering day in and day out, keeping on, keeping on, powered by the Spirit, fueled by grace, looking to Christ, considering Christ day in, day out. The unconverted cannot commit apostasy. The genuine believer will not commit apostasy, but we know that some do profess and yet fall away from the living God. And the author uses this term, falling away, uses this term, apostasy, to describe those who do fall away. So that genuine unbelievers might be awakened and genuine believers might be fueled on, fueled to press on. So you might be asking yourself, well, why in the world is he giving this warning if he's actually talking to believers? Well, because on a human level, I don't know if your heart is true and right with God. So I'm going to give the warning. This is what the author is doing. He's giving the warning. Guys, stay the course. Take care. Guard your heart, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. I don't have the power to crack into your soul and pull it open and be like, aha, I knew there was not true belief in there. 
We don't have the power to do that. So he launches the warning so that those who are truly in Christ will hear the warning and be fueled to go forward, marching forward, taking care, guarding their heart, being thankful for the new heart that's been planted within them. And then those who are going around professing one thing with their lips, but truly living another way with their lives, would also hear that same warning. And hopefully, by prayer, the power of God's Spirit will take that warning, pierce their soul, open their eyes to see that their profession of faith is in word only. There is no deed to prove that the profession is true. So then what is apostasy? If you want to describe apostasy in negative terms, that is, that, what I mean by that is to describe what apostasy is not. Here's what apostasy is not. Apostasy is not holding fast to Christ and his gospel until the very end. It is not doing this, right? Verse 6, we are his house. We can know that I am a true member in the household of God if, conditional statement, we indeed hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Verse 14, we can know that we truly share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Apostasy says this person at one point in time said, yes, my original confidence is in Christ. Yes, I'm boasting in him. Yes, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. But then over time, that confidence begins to fade. It begins to wane, begins to disappear. They begin to drift, and the pilgrim journey is no longer the journey that they find themselves on. They are no longer holding fast to Christ and his gospel. If you want to describe apostasy in positive terms to say here is what it is, it's verse 12. Apostasy is falling away from the living God. Either way you describe it, negatively, positively, the result, friends, listen, the result is that the person concerned once professed faith in Christ But now they are obstinately, decidedly, happily willing to say, I don't give a rip about Jesus anymore. I don't want anything whatsoever to do with him at all. So as we said at the beginning, they are just no longer counted among the sojourners traveling the pilgrim way. There was an apparent departure from the faith. And the point to note is that this is not something just which happened accidentally. It's not like they were running full tilt, full abandon for Jesus on Monday, then woke up on Tuesday so then like looked on their day planner and said, you know what, let's make shipwreck of the faith today. <laughs> Eject, gone. When someone no longer holds firmly to the faith as they once did, when they no longer love the Savior, when they turn aside from the gospel, when they are careless where holiness is concerned, when they turn back to their old ways, all of this does not just happen. It doesn't just happen. I was helped by Alistair Begg here where he made a reference to John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. I occasionally make reference to Pilgrim's Progress written by John Bunyan, and I'm repeatedly surprised by how many people have not read this book. You're doing yourself a disservice not to read this. If you go and you look in the history, like the number one best-selling book of all time is the Bible. The number two is like Pilgrim's Progress. It's an allegory written by him of the Christian faith. The man named Christian traveling the journey from the city of destruction to the heavenly city, the city of Zion. And he meets all these people along the way, right? 
Bunyan in this story talking about Christian's pilgrimage and his progress to the heavenly city helpfully delineates what this process of hardening unbelief looks like. So maybe you're asking yourself right now, me? I don't know. Where am I at? Like, how do I process this? Are there warning signs that can maybe be seen in someone's life if they are beginning to move down this path? And Bunyan says, yes, number one, this person who is moving in this way, drifting, falling away from the living God, number one, he said, Bunyan said, there will be a forgetfulness of God and a forgetfulness of the fact that one day we're going to meet God. So you just sort of begin to live life in such a way where you're sort of like, yeah, God's no longer on the front burner. He's on the back burner. Then eventually over time, he moves from the back burner to no longer even on the burner. You begin to live and eat and sleep and breathe and work and play and recreate in ways where God is just not even a part of the equation anymore. And then with this forgetfulness comes, secondly, the gradual loss of private holiness the loss of private prayer, the loss of curbing our lusts, and the loss of sorrow for our sins because God is no longer on the front burner because you have eliminated him from your life through the realm of forgetfulness. You no longer find yourself wanting to pray because why pray to a God that you don't care to remember in the first place? Why fight for holiness in your private life when you don't care to be holy like the God you don't even want to think about anymore? The curbing of our lusts, forget about it. Sorrow for sin, it's no big deal. And then living in this place, thirdly, he says, we will find that we begin to avoid the company of what Bunyan calls lively Christians. Christians who are going full tilt for Jesus. Christians who do want to pray. Christians who do want to share Christians who do want to be around other Christians, Christians who want to talk about the Bible, talk about Jesus, talk to others about these things, talk about confession of sin, talk about going to church, talk about, talk about, be about, do, go, lively. When you find your desire to be around dead Christians more than you want to be around lively Christians, it's a good indicator that your heart might be drifting in a place that you don't want it to drift to. Fourthly, there will be a disinterest in public worship. It's not that you don't show up at worship, but when you stand at worship, you look at all these lively Christians who are the fanatical radicals raising their hand, and you're just sort of going through the motions. You do God's stuff with your lips, but Christ is far from you. Fifthly, then, there will be a picking of faults in others. So you'll begin to look around at all these lively Christians that really get under your skin because they keep trying to make you remember the God that you would care to forget. And what you begin to do is belittle them and tear them down in your mind. Well, that John Kleinschmidt, he always just says that, the big fool. We try to tear him down. Jill, she's always trying to share Jesus with people. Yeah, she's just weird like that. Tear always raising her hand in worship service, the fanatic. And what we try to do is just try to pick people and tear them down in our minds to try to bring them down low. And with our heart becoming increasingly hard and our ears becoming increasingly deaf to God's voice, sixthly, there will be an increased association with the godless. 
And what Bunyan means by this is not that we are hanging around unbelievers to be a witness to them. He's not saying that like we stop showing up at work or talking to our neighbors, that kind of thing. He's talking about it more through the lens of Psalm chapter 1, where we, instead of seeking to stay away from the counsel of the wicked, sitting in the seat of the scoffers, we actually go, you know what? The wicked and the scoffers sort of look like really good company. Like, I really want to be around. I want their counsel. I want to hear what they have to say about these things. I don't care about what God's people have to say about this. I don't care about what God's word has to say about this. And because you care more for their counsel than the counsel of the godly, seventhly, we will be involved in fleshly lusts in secret. So you see the drift of how it's going. If you can eliminate God from your mind, if you can just start to not care about private holiness and private prayer and the curbing of lusts and the sorrow for sins, if you can disabuse those lively Christians around you by picking at their faults, showing up at church, showing up at community group, showing up at discipleship group, just going through the emotions, becoming increasingly enamored by the counsel of the wicked in the seats of the scoffers as opposed to those who are running at God. God and running after Christ, what you'll begin to do is fan into flame sin in secret in your heart. And then when this secret sin has gripped us, eighthly, we will begin to play with that sin openly. We'll begin to move to the place where we say, I, because I don't care about God, I don't care what you have to say, this thing I was once doing in dark, I'll just start to do it out and open. Until finally, ninthly, we reveal to all around us the true condition of our lives. All this, by the way, from an allegory of a guy named Christian walking on a path to the heavenly city, celestial city. That's why I encourage you to read Pilgrim's Progress. Friends, this is the peril of apostasy. It is very much a matter of eternal life and death. All of this is what happened to the Israelites in the wilderness. So with great care and concern, the author says, friends, I do not want this to happen to you. Therefore, verse 13, exhort one another every day. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. This is what you and I can do to take care against falling away. So notice the progression here. Verse 12, take care, brothers. There's the command. Here's the exhortation. Beware. I don't want an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So you should be asking the question, okay, if I'm supposed to take care, what can I do to take care? Answers verse 13, exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. Notice how he moves from the individual into the corporate. Sin is deceitful, he says. Sin promises good yet delivers evil. How many of us have been sniped by sin because we tried to roll the Christian life solo in a particular area of our life? Yeah? The author is saying that we fight the hardening effect of sin's deceit by not only, verse 12, individually examining ourselves to see if we have an evil, unbelieving heart, but, verse 13, corporately encouraging one another every day to breast the tape, run the race, finish the journey, firm to the end. So now, do you see what he's saying here? All of a sudden, a gathering like this isn't just some moot point. It's not just some epic waste of time. It's not just this thing we do because Christians have been doing it ad infinitum. 
It is actually a tangible expression of verse 13. Community group, tangible expression of verse 13. Discipleship group, tangible expression of verse 13. The coffee you have with your friend in the morning before work, tangible expression of verse 13. The hangouts that you do with your other Christian friends on Friday night, tangible expression of verse 13. The lunches that you have, the play dates with the moms, the groups that you're in, all of these, all of these, and many more are tangible expressions of verse 13 where you gather together, you're looking at one another, and you're fanning into flame. How can I exhort you to finish the race? How can I do this? How can I pray for you? What are you reading? Where are you at? What is Jesus teaching you? What song is fueling the gospel in your soul? And we just keep fanning, saying, come on, let's do this. Let's breast the tape. Let's run. Why? Because this is the way we take care against an evil, unbelieving heart that could lead you to fall away from the living God. Individual. Yes. Christ has saved me corporately. Let's do this, guys. Come on. Let's run this race. Let's breast the tape. Let's hold firm to the original confidence of the hope of the gospel we have in Christ firm to the end. And we lean on one another in a local body of believers in the multiple tangible expressions of that day in, day out exhortation that we have to do this. This, after all, is how we can know, verse 14, we have come to share in Christ. If we indeed hold our original confidence firm to the end, listen. Profession of faith does not guarantee possession of faith. Many people profess, but not all who profess possess. Now, all who truly possess faith at some point in time have professed Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. But just because someone professes to be a true believer, that doesn't mean they are. We can profess all sorts of things. I can look at my wife and say, I profess to be an automobile. And I'm going to move into my garage and I'm going to do automobile stuff in my garage and I'm going to do these sorts of things. I'm going to live here because that's where automobiles live and I'm going to surround myself with other cars and that kind of thing. You can profess something as insane as that all day long, but just because you profess it doesn't mean it's true. We can profess all sorts of things, but the proof will be in the pudding. Listen, dial in right here. I need you to hear this. We can profess all sorts of things, but the proof will be in the pudding. And listen to verse 14. The proof according to verse 14. 14, that you truly do possess faith in Christ, knowing that I have come to share in Christ. This proof looks like the word today. Today. I can know that I have come to share in Christ truly and genuinely. I can know this beyond a shadow of a doubt. Why? Because today, today by God's grace, I find myself holding firm to my original confidence that my eternal hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And then when, listen, when my lifetime of persevering todays comes to an end on that last day in my 80th decade when my head is on that pillow in the hospital and I'm about to breathe the last air of my last today and there I am still 
holding firm to the original confidence that my hope of salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone. What we can do, having endured that lifetime, persevered that lifetime by God's grace, by the power of the Spirit within us, getting up every day and saying, today, man, I'm holding firm. Today, my original confidence has not shifted. Today, I am looking to Christ Decade 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80. What we can do on that last day of the last breath of our last today is lay our head down on that pillow knowing that I'm about to meet my faithful and high priest and I'm resting on the promise of my Savior who said, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Will be saved. That's the promise of our faithful High priest. Therefore, the author says, hear his voice today. Hear his voice today. It's our last point. Look at verse 15. As it is said, verse 15, today, 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 if you hear his voice, do not Harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The key word is today. One person up here somewhere somewhere got it, right? Perseverance is not something to think about tomorrow, but today and every day. Do you know what the devil's favorite day of the week is? Tomorrow. Because if the devil can convince you to put off until tomorrow what must be dealt with today, then he is happy because he knows tomorrow is never going to come. Because guess what? You're going to wake up tomorrow and find out that it is today. And you're like, ah, I'll get to it tomorrow. Then you wake up tomorrow and you guess what? What day is it? Today. And you just keep kicking the can, kicking the can, kicking the can, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And there you are on your deathbed having never considered Christ. Look to him repenting of your sin, trusting in Christ alone for your only hope of salvation because you were always banking on tomorrow. I think I've told you guys this before when I was in the military. I remember having a gospel conversation with one of my, my squad mates. And as we were talking about these things, this was his response. His response was the devil's, the devil's day, tomorrow. He's like, you know what? Basically, I mean, like I'm, I'm cleansing it up here, but basically the summation of his word is I'm just going to live like hell. Because it's what I want to do. And then basically when I'm on my deathbed, I'll just throw a, sort of throw out a, hey, Jesus, remember me, kind of, will you save me, kind of thing. And then, boom, I'm going to be in. I'm going to be good. So in other words, he was saying what I'm going to do is make a very happy decision to live however I want to live my entire life, having no regard for Jesus, and then I'm just going to throw out a bone, throw a shout out to Jesus, and then just trust that he'll come, come sweeping in that moment. And by the way, he wasn't talking about throwing out a help me Jesus with a true, penitent, repentant heart. It was just sort of going to be like deathbed, oh, Jesus, you know, and then like all of a sudden he's just going to wake up in heaven. The devil's favorite day of the week is tomorrow. Is the Holy Spirit right now calling you to respond to him today? 
Remember, falling away from the living God, that is apostasy, has happened in the past. The Israelites heard and yet rebelled, verse 16. They sinned, verse 17. They were disobedient, verse 18. Ultimately displaying unbelief, verse 19. And for every occasion this proved true in someone's life, it began one day. One day. I don't know, somewhere in the past, just one day, they're just like, yeah, I'm not going to consider Jesus as much today. Yeah, I'm not going to consider Jesus. Yeah, I'm just going to forget him a little bit more. Yeah, I'm going to sort of withdraw from the lively Christians. Yeah, I'm going to start to nitpick them a little bit more. Yeah, I'm just going to show up and at worship, go through the motions, lips doing something, heart a thousand miles away, not really giving a care. Things of personal holiness and sin fighting, don't really want to do it, and then it just drifts, 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 drifts until there's the clean break. Therefore, says the author, consider Jesus today. Consider Jesus today. Remember, this is a continuing argument from what we heard last week. He's telling you to consider Jesus because he knows our unbelieving heart. Consider Jesus today, not tomorrow, but today. Verse 1, chapter 4. Consider Jesus today, not tomorrow, while, verse 1, chapter 4, while the promise of entering God's rest still stands. Friends, one day there's going to come a day where that rest will no longer be able to be entered into. So today, while the promise of entering that rest still stands, don't go like this, eh, tomorrow. Today. You see, chapter 4, verse 1, after all that we just talked to, is a hinge verse. It is going to swing us into the back half of the warning that covers all of chapter 4. But what you need to know is that hope hangs on this hinge. Hope hangs on this hinge. And it's hope that anyone here this morning can have. The promise of God's eternal rest grounded in the hope of the gospel our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. That's why he says in verse 1, so then let us fear. Fear what? Fear the genuine missing out of the promised rest that can come. Let us fear with proper reverence given the gravity of the situation. Let us fear lest any of us are apparently on the journey but not finally make it. If you hear God's voice today, do not harden your heart, but instead turn to him. Turn to him today and be saved. Let's pray. Father, would you take these words that I've just spoken and would you just make them stick? Father, I think uh, in your great love for us, you're happy not to overwhelm us when we hear a message like today, but maybe there's just a truth, a single truth, one, one truth that is just like for us, like Maybe a truth where you're like, I think the pastor might have read my email before he showed up today. Um, because that thing that he said was like exactly where I'm at and what I'm dealing with. So maybe that's a good indication that the Holy Spirit is doing something there. So Father, would you help us to consider this? To look to you, to consider Christ ultimately above everything. Father, would you fan into flame for those truly 
partaking in Christ, that enduring, persevering fuel, keeping on, keeping on, considering Jesus, enduring firm to the end. And then, Father, for those of us who are maybe drifting, God, would you stay that drift? Pull us back. Use others in the body of Christ to do this. And for those, Father, who are like on step eight of that list, Father, would you please, I beg, would you please open their eyes to see that Jesus is better. Draw them to repent and believe. Help us not just to talk about them, but to talk to them and pray for them so that we might see them plucked as a brand from the fire. It is in your name, King Jesus, I pray these things. Amen.